today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our brief look at the sacraments. Last episode, we saw the core point about sacrifice, the mass, and the priesthood. Today, we'll see how the other five sacraments are reasonable and logical. Can we show that our Lord instituted these sacraments? Can we show that there is an unbroken tradition of belief in confirmation and extramunction, matrimony and baptism, as well as confession? Is there a better answer than the Catholic Church says so? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father John McFarland for episode number 36 of the Apologetic Series here on the SSPX Podcast. Father McFarland, last time we talked, it was right around Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving holiday? Was it all right? It was very nice. Thank you. Good. Good. Very good. Uh, It was good. It was quiet, and I slept a lot, and not a lot of family, which, in well, it was fine. (laughs) Uh, They don't. They don't watch this anyway. We're fine. Um, They'll just watch this one in particular. Yeah. They. Yeah. They probably will watch. Um, <laughs> on, uh, on this episode, Father, we're going to be looking at uh, the rest of the sacraments in general um, in terms of, you know, where can we find in Scripture and from our Lord himself the fact that, that these were instituted by him? Um, where should we start on, on this episode, Father? Well, I think just to point out that is, this is from an apologetic point of view, uh, looking at the sacraments, um, if you're looking for a comprehensive treatment of the Catholic sacraments, the, the doctrine pertaining to them, you can check out our series on the sacraments, uh, which goes into more detail from, from those points of view. Um, so here we're looking at the, the five sacraments that we didn't see previously, uh, which was, so all of them except for uh, the Holy Eucharist and Holy Orders from that apologetic point of view. Okay. And just as a, as a quick recap, make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, a sacrament is, from our catechism, visible sign, instituted by Christ, gives grace. Yep. There you go. That's essentially it. Okay. So, um, that, so go ahead. So a visible sign, uh, a kind of ceremony, um, something that, that we can perceive with the senses, and um, which, by the command of Jesus Christ, gives grace, which, if he had not commanded so, do I? Right. Okay. And, and in order to give us these sacraments, how did, how did Christ decide to give us, uh, to, to give us the means to have these sacraments? Well, so, you know, we, we have to receive the grace that, that, uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ brought. Uh, so he accomplishes our redemption on the cross, by the sacrifice of his precious blood that merits all the grace that the world will ever need. But then how is that grace communicated to human beings throughout space and time? We don't just get all get that grace instantaneously just by the fact of being born and entered to this world, being human beings, et cetera. And that's very clear from, from Holy Scripture and their certain modernist theories, effectively, that, that turn us all into saints just because we're human. But that's obviously not the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our Lord, to convey this, this grace to us, founds a church. Uh, in the Gospels, he speaks 
constantly about the the church that he's founding. Uh, I would keep mentioning a passing that he he never once mentions uh, that we today acquire grace by reading the Bible, um, and he never wrote anything himself that we're aware of, other than the uh, the time he was writing on the crown with his finger. That's it, and we don't have that anymore. Um, right. And to this, to the church, he then leaves the the channels of grace that we call the sacraments. So it's by these means that we're able to receive the forgiveness of our sins and the the fortification that we need to to save our souls. And if grace is communicated directly without any intermediary between us and God, then why was our Lord so insistent on this church that he's founding? And um, if there are no determined means of receiving grace, how would we know that we had done so? How do you know, just by the, the nice feelings we have, by the burning in the bosom, as the the, uh, the Mormons talk about. I, yeah. And that again, that's not those that's not founded in Holy Scripture. Um, if you come up with some other explanation for uh, how we know that we receive grace, so he's giving us these channels of grace, and this is this is something that the sacraments are not just like you said, a, a feeling that we get, there is a physicality. There's a, there's something of, of the world in them. Right. And so we have physical nature, right? uh, a spiritual soul in a physical body. And our Lord Jesus Christ is, is incarnate. So he is the, uh, the infinite God become man, having a, a, a human nature like our own. And the, the church, mirrors those realities and bears a resemblance to her divine founder in that there are elements of things that are invisible in, in her, in what she does and things that are visible. And, um, so the sacraments we're, we're going to say is that the church is ministering to the, the interior spiritual element through the agency of the, the exterior, like the visible. Um, because again, that's, that's how we operate. If I'm trying to convey information to you, I, I, I can't do it directly to your mind. Right. <laughs> um, give it a try. Did I get it? Uh, you know what I'm trying to say? No. No. Nope. So we do something physical. We speak. We write. We're uh, things that we're able to perceive. And it's it's sacraments you know, work according to our nature, oddly enough. God created our nature, and he knows how to work with that nature. Uh, and he does work according to that nature that he, that he gave us. So sacraments are then these exterior signs, these, these sense perceptible signs of a, an imperceptible reality, which is the infusion of grace. Okay. Father, when you're, when you are administering a sacrament, you're, you're hearing my confession, for instance, and you're giving me uh, actual graces through the confession. Is that you are, are you the one who is giving me the grace? Only instrumentally. Uh, we can we could say that certainly, but it's it, it's Jesus Christ who, who confers that grace. So he's the he's the one who operates in all the sacraments, and he has ministers um, fulfilling the function in his church, following the the rules laid down by him and by the church, in order to to validly bring about this the, this effect. But it is he is the the principal minister of any sacrament. And consequently, the church can't invent sacraments. Mm -hmm. So he may have left the details um, 
in the determination of the, uh, the matter and form of those sacraments of uh, things that may even affect validity, but the church can't say, hey, how about an eighth sacrament? That'd be great. Uh, or we don't like one of these, or you know, two of these sacraments, we don't need them anymore, we'll knock it down to five. The church has no power to right. do that. So these are from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And, and these sacraments, they exist in, in the East and in the West, in, in basically every tradition, uh, except for basically from 1500s on, mm-hmm. these, these sacraments they all exist, right? Yep. Constant tradition, East and West, that there are seven sacraments. Uh, okay. You never have anything saying anything else to 32 or five with 13, what have you are. I mean, occasionally you'll get some heretics that deny sacraments uh, entirely, sure. but they were uh, relatively uh, small and significant groups up until the the 16th century. Okay. Uh, we're going to be looking at some of the scriptural records of, of the sacraments of the founding of the sacraments. But at the end of the day, it is basically the tradition of the church. And this is what we're going to be relying on. Isn't this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? The church says so, therefore it is. Uh, yes, I mean it's true of, of so many things, and I think you know we can get. It's important to to respond to some of the the erroneous ideas about sacraments um, that can be hangups for people. But really, when when you come down to it, Jesus Christ founded the church, and if you accept that reality and understand the reality that, that the church he founded is the Catholic Church, then this becomes pretty easy. The church has answered these questions and answered them thoroughly and repeatedly. Uh, over the last 2000 years. So, um, you know, we can take from that teaching or we can beginning, you know, a mere 500 years ago, start making up our own ideas, but who cares about those? Jesus Christ instituted a church um, to transmit and protect his doctrine and his sacraments. And if you accept the doctrine of the church, that, that, you know, that the church is founded by Jesus Christ, uh, then this question of the sacraments becomes pretty easy. So I think if you're if you have limited time and what to study, the uh, the nature of the church, the apologetics pertaining to the church, is the more more fundamental and, and important thing, undoubtedly. Okay. Well, let let's dive in then, Father, and let's start with uh, baptism. This is one of the the sacraments that is pretty easy to pinpoint in Scripture, and, and there's not a lot of debate among any sort of Christian tradition anywhere that baptism is, uh, is, is where we start. Right. And I mean, you have different ideas about what baptism does, uh, right. and so on, but its existence is not disputed. Uh, going therefore teach you all nations, baptize them in the name of the father and the son of the Holy ghost. It's that the, uh, conclusion of St. Matthew's gospel. Um, that's, uh, pretty obvious that this is something, something important. Right. And in, in St. John's gospel, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to, to Nicodemus says, Amen, amen, I say to thee, unless man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does being born of water mean? Again, constant tradition of the church that it means baptism. And I, what else would it mean? Uh, there aren't really any other uh, options right. in this case. Um, and you uh, have a certain degree of controversy over, uh, well, you know, in the early church, baptism was always done by immersion, and you Catholics do it by infusion, which is just pouring water on the head. Uh, so your baptism you know, is invalid or not according to uh, the way it was done by the apostles. Um, 
undoubtedly immersion was more common in the uh, in the early centuries of the church and probably up until the 12th or the 13th century it was the more common way but uh, we can see that um, baptism was done uh, in other ways also particularly very often baptism done in prisons so the, uh, the jailer baptized baptized in Philippi and the Acts of the Apostles um, could hardly have been baptized by immersion there and, you know, at that moment. And the Acts of the Martyrs often refer to baptism taking taking place in a, within the walls of the prison. Probably not a big pool of water that you can dunk somebody in. And so there would be that pulling of the water on the head. Right. And St. Okay. Cyprian already in the third century deals with the the uh the question explicitly saying that baptism by by pouring water is valid baptism where do we get the tradition of infant baptism i know that that's an, that's another source of controversy among some some beliefs right and it it goes it does go way back um so origin saint cyprian um saint augustine all refer to the practice of infant baptism so that's second third and then fourth into the fifth century um and origin and was, was writing in the, the second century, surviving into the third, if I'm not mistaken, both explicitly state that infant baptism was a, a apostolic institution. Uh, okay. And it does, you know, it does make sense. How else could a, an, uh, a child who's not reached the use of reason receive sanctifying grace? So if you don't survive to adulthood, you're just out of luck. Um, right. Is, uh, has not been the tradition of the church. And again, there, there are there are contra- there's disagreements among some some traditions of well, baptism is just basically membership into the church. It doesn't actually do anything, and all we have to do is look back at Jesus's words: right. "Unless you be Unless, born again of water and the Holy Ghost, right, you cannot enter, enter the kingdom of God." There's something there that's preventing you. Now there's not, and it's not physical. Right. So, and the two things are, are linked: that that being born again of water and the Holy Ghost is it's in the same thing. It's it is right. in that that sacrament of baptism. So. It expresses the sacramental nature that you have the water, which is the exterior sign, and you have the Holy Ghost given coming into the soul to sanctify it. That's the interior operation of grace. Okay. Continuing on with uh, the the fun job of playing devil's advocate with you, Father. Uh, Confirmation. Uh, There seems to be some controversy among some beliefs that confirmation and baptism were never really supposed to be two separate things. It was all supposed to be the same sacrament. Where do we find in scripture that this is a second separate uh, act or, or yeah, thing? <laughs> um, in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, okay. So um, Peter and John are, are sent to, to Samaria. Right? They've heard that, that Samaria has received the word of God. Um, and scripture says, who, when they were come, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For he was not as yet come upon any of them but they were only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they've received baptism, but then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So this, this laying of hands is the part of the matter of the sacrament of, of confirmation. So imposition of hands ordinarily by the bishop um, and the anointing uh, of the head of the candidate. Okay. Now, what is it? What is it that I guess the the purpose? And I know Jesus can do whatever He would like to do, so I'm not questioning our Lord. But what is the purpose for these two separate things? It seems like it's it's almost sort of the same. Again, baptism cleanses original sin. Confirmation is increase in grace. But it seems right. like it could have been done in in one. Why the 
the, the separation of the two sacraments, well, Father. St. Thomas talks about the, our spiritual life having a resemblance to natural life and the baptism being being birth into the life of, of grace, life of the spirit and confirmation representing that, that arrival at adulthood. So receiving to attaining to maturity, there's a strengthening of, of the soul for the, the new combats that coming with new, new responsibilities. Uh, one becomes a, a soldier of Christ. And it is um, again in the tr- tradition of the church, clearly distinct as something other than, than baptism. Okay. And just like with baptism, we have a lot of early testimonies of the church fathers, same, same sort of folks talking about, talking yep. about it. Yep. And okay. Tertullian, uh, second century speaks of the, uh, uh, both the anointing and the imposition of hands. St. Cyprian says by our prayer and imposition of hands, they receive the Holy ghost. St. Cyprian is a bishop, so an ordinary master of confirmation. And it is again, a sacrament that's celebrated in all the Eastern churches, including those that are separated from Rome. Some of them who have been separated from Rome since about the fourth century and who still oh, wow. uh, have that the all seven sacraments, including confirmation. Okay. And we're not going to get into East versus West in terms of infant baptism, age of reason. We did, <laughs> we did all of that in the sacrament series. Again, this yep. is just a quick run through for yep. an apologetics point of view, right? Oh, I've got to try to get through, you know, five sacraments in a fairly limited amount of time. All right, let's keep going then. Uh, penance, uh, where is it in, in scripture or in tradition where our Lord says that there is such a thing as penance instead of just praying to God and your sins are forgiven? Well, we can say Jesus's primary mission recently comes into to this earth is to, to save sinners and to reconcile them with, uh, with his father. Um, you know, our Lord received an eight with sinners. He pardoned Mary Magdalene. He pardoned the woman taken in adultery. He tells the, the parables of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and especially of the prodigal son, indicating this, this disposition of God to, to forgive sinners, that this is the, uh, the fundamental element of, of his mission. Um, and then it, he himself offers to those who, who are repentant, the assurance that their sins have been forgiven. So the man sick of the palsy, paralyzed, which is easier to say, uh, to the, to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk so that you may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say to thee, arise, take up thy bed and go into thy house. So he has told him, you know, that his sins are, are forgiven him. And then he proves it by demonstrating that he, he has divine power by working this miracle. The paralyzed man stands up, picks up his bed uh, and walks away. And so the church's purpose is to continue the mission of Jesus Christ on earth after our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven. So the, the church has been founded to continue the mission of Jesus Christ on earth. And if the, the, the fundamental element of that mission is the forgiveness of sins, then it stands to reason that, that the church has a role to play in the forgiveness of sins. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ is, is clear when he gives this role to his apostles. Amen, amen, I say to you, sorry, amen, I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose upon earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so that that binding and loosing, the uh, binding one to responsibility for one's sin or, or freeing them 
um, from that, that punishment that is due to them. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. Whose sins you shall forgive them, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. So the apostles are sent, in imitation of their master, our Lord Jesus Christ, to forgive sins, to reconcile sinners to God. And it's not just the announcement of forgiveness. Uh, Whose sins you shall forgive are our Lord's words. So there's a real power on the, the part of the apostles to make this judgment. This person is repentant. He can be forgiven from his sins. And you know, it, it's you have to do you know, violence to the text to, to say, well, it's just, just an announcement of the forgiveness that's already been given. Uh, that's not the case. Whose sins you are forgive, they are forgiven them. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. That's, that's pretty yeah. strong. That is, if, if in the judgment of the apostle who's is dealing with the repentant sinner, this person is, is a fraud, this person is not really sorry for his sins, etc., he's able to say, no, you are not forgiven. And then we, we have the we have the tradition of the church that, that states that this power has continued on to the successors of the apostles and then mm-hmm. also to to the priesthood as well. But where do we find that evidence again in, in scripture, I guess, in the early traditions of the church? Uh, because how do we know whether our Lord was talking just to you, the apostles, you plural, the apostles or you to the whole class of of priests in the future? Well, I think there's a, I mean, an argument of common sense to be made. So okay. our, our Lord is is founding a church that's supposed to last until the end of time. And why would he give a, a special power for forgiving sins, which everybody will need until the end of time, just to these men who are not even going to live for a hundred years of that um, life of the church? So just a small fraction, just these few fortunate people who live during the time of the apostles get that assurance of their sins. And, and then yeah. the rest of us just to say, oh, well, I hope I'm forgiven. Uh, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, and then it's recorded in, in Holy Scripture, too, for a reason. It's meant to, to teach us and it's meant to teach us more than that the apostles were especially privileged, but to teach us that, that the church has been given this power and this power is, is passed on in perpetuity as long as the, the church continues to exist on this earth. There was some debate, I think, early on about the concept of, you know, if if in danger of death, you could confess to another person who wasn't necessarily a priest. But the church mm-hmm. has come down pretty firmly on the idea that it does need to be the priesthood. It, right. There does need to be a priest to, to hear the confession, to judge. Right. And I mean, in, a, in that situation, if you can't have a priest, then maybe as a way of stimulating you to greater rep- repentance that God might um, forgive you. Anyhow, even in the absence of the sacrament to excite you to perfect contrition, uh, that's, that's a possibility that it would be worth something, um, but it's not a sacrament. A sacrament mm-hmm. it is, it's a power given to the, to the apostles, not to all of the faithful in general, uh, and passed on to those who fulfill the ministry that the, that the apostles fulfilled, the, the bishops and the priests. Do we see evidence of this again in, in writings of the fathers or actions of the fathers, early church fathers? Uh, Undoubtedly, and we have it, um, you know, even in, in uh, the New Testament outside of the Gospels, and in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, and many of them that believed came confessing and declaring their deeds. So they're they're confessing to uh, um, it's not the, the 
most complete evidence, but that's in uh, Acts chapter 19. And then um, in the first epistle of St. John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. So the idea again of, uh, of confession. Um, and St. Augustine, uh, very clear on the subject, as he often is, let no one say to himself, I do penance to God in private. Something you hear pretty frequently um, by people who oppose the, the existence of the sacrament of confession. I do it before God. Is it then, is it then in vain that Christ has said, whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? Is it vain that the keys have been given to the church? Do we make void the gospel, void the words of Christ? God could have chosen a different method for forgiving sinners, but he didn't. He chose this one. And what do those words mean? What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, and he didn't allow the, the remission of sins to remain in the realm of subjectivity and, and fickle human emotion. I just, you know, I, I feel like I love Jesus and I feel like I'm forgiven of my sins. And, and now I, I know that I am. Uh, that's right. not, you know, find me that in Holy Scripture. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's not there. It's not the way anything works uh, in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not meant to rely on our feelings. St. Ambrose uh, rebukes heretics, the Novatians, who profess to show reverence to the Lord by reserving to him alone the power of forgiving sins. Oh, mm. reverence for the Lord. Uh, greater wrong cannot be done than what they do in seeking to rescind the commands and fling back the office he bestowed. The church obeys him in both respects by binding sin and by loosing it, for the Lord willed that for the for both the power should be equal. And then he goes on to teach this power pertains to the priesthood. It seemed impossible that sin should be forgiven through penance. Christ granted this to the apostles, and from the apostles it has, trans it has been transmitted to the office of priests. So again, just a, a snapshot of what is the, the constant tradition of the church, what we do find in the Father's uh, confession and absolution, the sacrament that we call penance. Okay. Um, along the same lines of penance, again, we have a, another sacrament that seems very similar to penance at first glance, which is extreme unction. Um, again, why the, why the distinction, the difference between penance and extreme unction? Extreme unction is not... Um, concerned directly with the, the forgiveness of sins. It does contribute to the remission of, of penalty due to sin, um, to the healing of the body, and can, per accidents, as we say, um, under certain circumstances, remit the guilt due to sin. Uh, That's at least the, the common opinion of theologians. Um, okay. So it is to, to fortify the soul uh, of the, the person who's dying for the, the final combat and to uh, possibly, in fact, heal the body. All right. And so we have this again as as constant tradition of the church. The the fathers are talking about it and, and they're they're describing it as a, a distinct and separate sacrament. It's not anointing like it is for confirmation, and it's not just penance, but they're talking about something distinct. Yep. And beginning with the we don't have any any record of it directly in the gospel. That that's true, but the apostle Saint James refers to it in his epistle. He says, Is any man sick among you? Let him bring in the priests of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick man and the Lord shall raise him up. And if you be in, in sins, they shall be forgiven. So again, pretty straightforward. It's describing the Catholic sacrament of anointing those who are, who are sick, particularly those who are in, in danger of death. This is the 
scriptural basis for the sacrament. And again, we find it in the constant tradition of the church. Okay. Uh, Origen, speaking of it in his commentary on Leviticus, making a direct reference to the epistle of St. James, St. John Chrysostom does, and speaking about the priesthood, which is significant, it's the priests who do the anointing. Uh, Pope Innocent, in a letter written in 416, he invokes St. James, again, in support of, of uh, extreme unction being a sacrament, and, and a sacrament like sacrament of penance, or like the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. And the the ancient sacramentaries, these, these liturgical books, contain rites for administering the sacrament. Mm. And again, once again, all the schismatic orientals, some of them separated from Rome, again, since the 4th century, count this anointing among their sacraments as well. You see, founded in uh, there in Holy Scripture itself. All right. Uh, let's move on then to, to marriage. Uh, this is, again, as we saw in the sacrament series, one of the or the, the unique uh, sacrament in that the, the recipients are the ministers. But we're not really talking about that. We're talking about the fact that our Lord instituted it as a sacrament. Where can we oh, no. find that, Father? Right, and it is, it's an interesting thing, too, because it's the, it's the only sacrament that has a, a – that's what I want um, – a counterpart. A natural? Uh, yeah, a okay. counterpart in the natural order. So there, there's, there was marriage before Jesus Christ came, and there's marriage after. And you know, is there a, a fundamental difference? Is it, is it a sacrament? Uh, but our Lord does, does speak about marriage. Obviously, he, he says uh, that men are no longer permitted to put away their wives um, and marry another. Um, and those that, that marry those that have been, have been divorced from their husbands, they, they are uh, committing adultery. And, um, you know, we might ask most Protestants, too, if their views on marriage actually coincide with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, or if they do permit divorce and remarriage, which is extremely common uh, yeah. among Protestant groups. St. Paul has some strong things to say, too. Let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as the Christ is head of the church. He is the savior of his body. Therefore, as this church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in all things. Husband loves your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it. And that's quite significant because right, St. Paul is likening the union of man and wife to the union between Christ and his church. So it's he's saying that marriage is a sacred sign, something that transcends the natural because that relationship between Christ and the church is profoundly supernatural. And St. Augustine refers to this, this, uh, this passage from St. Paul to prove that, that marriage is a sacrament. And we have our Lord Jesus Christ himself declaring its, its unity and indissolubility, saying, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. What God has joined together gives an indication that it's, it's, there's something stronger there even than the natural bond, or we can say that God is certainly the author of the natural bond of marriage as well. Right. That that to me is is the key phrase right there, saying that this is this is something that was ordained by God, made by God. Even if Christ Himself didn't explicitly say, "Hey, do this and do it in this specific way," again, we don't know that He, he may have said that to, said that to the apostles. We don't know. We don't right. have a record of it, but our Lord certainly right. did will it. Yes, and that's uh, clear from uh, from Holy Scripture. And this, you know, the idea of 
of sacraments and there being seven sacraments, revelation doesn't work like a textbook. Like we can just, you know, Holy Scripture, flip to the section on the sacraments and here they are. It gives all seven. Uh, God has allowed things to be more obscure than that and things to be worked out uh, and made more explicit by the church. And that's the case in the, in the, the teaching about the sacraments. So the sacramentality of marriage was really in, implicitly taught in the church up until about the fifth century. But if you look at what the fathers were teaching, it sure looks like what we say about sacraments. So they're teaching that, that marriage was sanctified by Christ. That's rather significant in terms of indicating its sacramentality. And St. Ambrose says just that explicitly, marriage is sanctified by Christ. Also, the fathers were teaching that, that marriage is a sacred right that's been confided to the church. So St. Ignatius of Antioch writing to St. Polycarp, when I end up pretty early on in the, in the second century, those who marry should be united with the bishop's approval so that the marriage may follow God's will and not merely the promptings of the flesh. So there's an indication there of the involvement of uh, the minister of the church as well. And... Tertullian wrote that, how shall we ever be able to adequately describe the happiness of that marriage which the church arranges? The sacrifice strengthens, upon which the blessing sets a seal, at which angels are present as witnesses, and to which the Father gives his consent. The Father, um, with a capital F, the, the Heavenly Father. Okay. Um, so again, that's, those are strong things in, indicating the, the, the holiness of this sacrament, that it is a sacred sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Yeah. So this is, and again, this is where we get the, the, the concept. And again, we treat this much more in detail in the other series, but this is where we get the concept of two Catholics cannot get married outside of the church, outside of the sacramental uh, act. Well, yeah. So two Catholics getting married, having the, the witness, the official witness of the church is a stipulation put on marriage by the church who has the care of the sacraments since the time of the Council of Trent, because prior to that, clandestine marriage would have been considered valid. Um, ah. That, you know, a, a man and, and woman uh, walk in the woods someplace, could decide they were getting married and with no witnesses, and you can imagine the sort of abuses and uh, right. things that that led to. So in the interest particularly of protecting women from, from uh, unscrupulous men, the church insisted that there be the official witness of, of the church, the priest present, and to give the blessing of the marriage as well, and that there'd be two other witnesses besides so that nobody could uh, pretend to go through the the, uh, the ceremony and um, or try to back out of it later. Okay. So this is this is much more of a disciplinary law than, yes. Okay. Yes. than okay. the nature of the thing. And in fact, in a, in a case where you know, there, there is no priest available, that it's possible to be married simply in front of, of two witnesses. Yeah, because it's 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 funny because uh, you know growing up I was always told you know yeah two people could get married in front of a witness without a priest present I mean if there's a case where churches are ever all, all closed and we're like yeah that would never happen oh wait 2020 happened and there were <laughs> cases of people not having access to a church for a year right and I something mean, <laughs> happened in in Japan after the country was closed off the the missionaries had been run out or martyred and for a couple hundred years the 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 church in Japan survived. And they administered the sacraments that they could administer validly, baptism and marriage. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, 
again, we that was a really quick run through of the other five sacraments. I mean, but it was perfect for our purposes, just for looking at this from apologetical stand, standpoint. Um, we did do though, like we've mentioned a few times, this whole series on on the sacraments. Uh, do you want to pitch that just for a second and and talk about what what people can find there? Right, and that they're a much uh, more thorough treatment of the the um, individual sacraments. So not one podcast with five sacraments. <laughs> crammed into it with a few quotes from scripture and the fathers, but rather, you know, a, a thorough explanation of the, the Catholic doctrine uh, of the, uh, on the, on the subject of, the, of each particular sacrament, also on the sacraments in general. Um, so that's a, you know, certainly worth your time to, to, uh, to delve into if you're particularly interested in this, this subject on the sacraments. And uh, also we deal with the, uh, the new rites of the sacraments in the, in the modern church to which we have, strong and serious objections uh, and they talk about what's, what's going on there, what the problems with those, those new rights are. So um, again, something that, that goes into more depth, this just from a, uh, a, a brief uh, apologetic standpoint to uh, understand that these, the existence of these sacraments is well-founded in the two sources of revelation, scripture and tradition. Absolutely. And again, like, like you said earlier, father, this whole thing is, is once you establish that Jesus Christ was real, he was God, he founded a church for us. The rest just flows. It just works from there, but you, you do have to have those principles. Right. Right. And, and these, you know, knowing that this is the constant practice of the church, knowing that it has a foundation in scripture can help certain people get over the hump. Uh, but you know, I, we say, we both look at that passage from St. James about anointing the, the, those who are sick. And mm-hmm. I say, see, this proves that the, the extra function is a sacrament. And you say, no, it doesn't. And I say, yes, it does. And where do, where do we go? Who's the, the arbitrator of that, that discrepancy and in interpretation? It's the church right? founded by Jesus Christ to, that has this, the, this authority to pronounce definitively. And she has pronounced definitively on the subject. There are seven sacraments and what those seven sacraments are and the essentials that we all need to believe about them. And so it's the same authority that, uh, established by Jesus Christ to do this. It's the same authority that has established which books are in the Bible, and it's it's up to the church to authoritatively uh, interpret scripture and tradition uh, as far as what what uh, what we as as believers uh, need to accept um, in order to to hold the the teaching of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, and and what a what a fantastic gift they are. I mean, it can't it can't be understated or overstated over whatever you know. <laughs> I, yes. I guess I'll just I, say I it's, they're, it's Advent, really go good. to confession, they're <laughs> use <good>. it. <laughs> they're good. <laughs> yes. Go go to, go to communion often, go to, uh, make a good confession during this Advent. Certainly lots of graces that, that God will give you, uh, through those sacraments. Absolutely. Father, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Andrew. God bless you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.